Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, welcome to this bonus episode of The Spill, your daily pop culture fix. I'm Kiris. And I'm Laura Brodnick. And I love these bonus episodes because we get a bit fast and loose, honey, and we have a great time. Especially loose now because we're in holiday mode and we're counting down something very close to our hearts. We are indeed. This is all about the most impactful television shows of 2020. We're going to count them down and then explain the impact that they had on pop culture and entertainment. But first, we have a little taste of our new and upcoming TV shows that we are getting super excited about for 2021. It's all over town that you're reopening the investigation. Jamie Sullivan, he's lying. He wasn't with his nan. You think you're going to get the truth in a town like this? When you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. Where were you that afternoon? Why would I lie? Because Luke asked you to. All right, so on January 1st, we have the adaption of Jane Harper's best-selling novel of the same name, The Dry. It's absolutely one of my favourite books, if not actually my favourite book. The way that she writes the landscape is just so beautifully done. So I am so excited to see it all come to life. Laura Brodnick, have you read the book? I certainly have. <gasps> it's so good. Hopefully we get to see this with each other. So it tells the story of an Australian federal agent called Aaron Fork, and he's played by Eric Banner in the movie, who after 20 years away from his hometown, he returns. It's, you know, it, people are kind of doing it rough out there due to the drought, and he's come back because he's attending one of his childhood friend's funerals who has died in an apparent murder-suicide. And as he kind of starts to investigate the murder, he realises there's a bit of mystery around it and not only that it kind of drudges up this kind of old wound about another unsolved death but back in the day when he was a little bit younger and he's kind of struggling to prove that his friend is a great guy and also that he is a great guy I am so excited to see this as am I it was a sea lizard six feet long days it took to dig it out clean it I was only 11 years old. It's in the British Museum. That one was special. Also coming out the movies on January 14th, we have Ammonite, which is the new romantic drama loosely inspired by the life of British paleontologist Mary Anning. So the movie is set in the 1840s and Mary is played by Kate Winslet. She's an acclaimed paleontologist who now works alone on the southern English coastline. So you've got that beautiful, dreary, dark coastal English vibe, which I love. And Saoirse Ronan plays Charlotte. So she's a tourist who's in the 
the area. She's traveling with her husband, who's a lot older than her, and she's recovering from a very personal tragedy. So Charlotte and Mary get brought together through a set of circumstances. They initially clash, and this is my favorite love story trope of all time. I could watch it over and over again. They initially clash key, but then they slowly start to fall in love and they have this beautiful hidden torrid but like loving affair they're just two of the best actresses of our time and i'm so excited to see them play opposite each other in the same movie exactly so there are a lot of headlines in 2020 that we talked about where people were very set on the sex scenes and like those are very good but i think the story itself and the characters and the performances from these two women is what's really going to set this apart and the reviews are already so good for it so ammonite 14th of january australia put it on your list done and dusted i think you might be having a baby no no she's having a baby Congratulations. Wow, this explains the random crying and violent mood swings. Oh, he's had a baby. Shut the front door. All right, I am so excited to talk about this one. It's actually a new original series from Stan, which came out on New Year's Day. It has 10 episodes in total, and it's set in and around a high school in an inner city suburb of Sydney. So the story centres around Olympia, or Ollie, as she's called in the series, who's played by Natalie Morris. And she's this like really ambitious, high-achieving teenage girl who has no idea that she's pregnant and ends up having this baby. And basically the story follows all of the complications that follow for both of the families that are involved. So what I love about it is it's this very much this feminist story in showing kind of the differences and the responsibility of what happens when you do have a child, but it's also exploring unexpected motherhood, you know, unwelcome new relatives and just unintended consequences with so much humour and emotional honesty. So the big draw card I think for this is Claudia Carvin. She stars as Ollie's mum and she actually acts as producer on the show too. The other big star is Angus Sampson who plays Ollie's dad and the relationship between Claudia and Angus is just brilliant on screen. And then the third thing I wanted to touch on was the fact that this cast is just amazingly diverse. You and I are always talking about it on this podcast that casting and and diversity and casting is so important and this show really has done that so there's a whole heap of fresh and exciting talent including Carlos Sanson Jr who plays Santi the lead man Catalina Palmer Safia Arain Paula Garcia Ioni Sula Peter Thumwald and Ricardo Schilling Vasquez it's really great I went to the premiere and it was all high school themed with spiked <laughs> poppers and lunch boxes. And it was just in an auditorium at a real high school. And it's just really great. And I love that our podcast really champions a lot of Australian work because it's so important. And there's so much talent in our country. I love it. Oh, there is. Yeah. And I agree that Bump is amazing. It's got all the best parts of Australian drama in terms of how it captures like these amazing parts of suburban life and family Mm. life and and the changing dynamics of family life in this more modern society. But also, as you're saying, it's touching on all these kind of different nuances of storytelling. It's got like a lot of women behind the scenes in in like along with Claudia Carvin. It's from the same team as Love My Way. So it's taken everything we love about Australian drama and made it better 
better, which I think, and also it's the best binge watch because every episode kind of ends on like not a big mystery, but it ends on another big point of the reveal of the story or another big moment for a character that you have to keep pushing through because you instantly have this connection to these characters, especially Ollie. Like I've obviously never been through Mm. something like that before, but I felt that girl's story deep in my soul. Oh, deep in my soul, na na na, deep in my soul. It's one of Charlie's favourite songs. He plays it all the time. (laughs) Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? Okay, my pick for going into January is Promising Young Woman. So this one's coming out January 7th in Australia. So, God, where to start with this movie? I can't say enough good things about it. So basically, it's a new black comedy thriller, and it's written, directed, produced, all the things by Emerald Fennell. So you probably know Emerald Fennell's name from playing Camilla on The Crown, where she's quite amazing, but she's also the showrunner of Killing Eve. and, and Oh, wrote, wow. Yeah, right. And wrote, she, so she took over from the initial team and has been handling the show since then. So she's got a really sharp, witty, just really dominating kind of storytelling presence. And she's brought all that to Promising Young Woman. So in the movie, Carrie Mulligan, who I think a lot of us know her from period dramas or more kind of serious things, really just shows off her acting chops here, but also her comedic timing is brilliant. So Mm. she plays a woman called Cassie, who was always a really bright, engaging student. And then she dropped out of med school because you know, there's something happened, which come, you find out later in the film. And now she's just working in a diner by day on minimum wage and still living at home with her parents who, one of her parents is Jennifer Coolidge, you know, from like the American Pride franchise, but she's in a serious, she's in a serious role here. It's so good. She's amazing. And her parents just can't understand how their like amazing smart daughter is just like living like a recluse in their house as she turns 30 with no plans for her life. But what they don't know is she's living this kind of secret double life. So because she was kind of having to deal with a sexual assault situation, her college years that forced her to drop out, she now goes out to bars and clubs and stuff at night, always in a different outfit, so like almost dresses a character and pretends to be just like blind, out of her mind, drunk, can't talk, can't walk, doesn't know where she is. And this is kind of like a trap for men to take advantage of her, to take her home and to try and have sex with her when she clearly can't give consent. The only thing is she's completely sober and a very dark consequence happens for those men once they do realize that she is yeah exactly and so yeah exactly but there's also a kind of like a darker story and like in some points like you're just cheering I think there's a lot of wish fulfillment for any woman who has been in a situation like that whether it be a co-worker or some random guy in a bar or someone you went to high school with of some guy who's put you in a situation that you feel bad about and you fantasize about getting the upper hand and getting some sort of revenge and that's I think what you kind of live through here but it also kind of gets a lot darker as the storyline goes on and Cassie has to confront the people in college that kind of did her wrong and she's got this amazing cast so like Connie Britton stars as the dean of her university who kind of covered up some stuff at the time Alison Brie stars as her former college 
classmate Madison who was also complicit in it and kind of has a bit of a revelation later on the movie but the Mm. smartest piece of casting in this movie which is just brilliant is that all the actors in it are played by traditional good guys of TV so you've got Ah. Adam yes you've got Adam Brody who we know as Seth Cohen and we all from the OC and we all love him and we've got Max Greenfield who plays Schmidt on New Girl who you know everyone loves him as well he's a good guy he's so lovable Chris Lowell who plays one of my favorite characters ever Piz from Veronica Mars you know traditional good guy lovely was always the loyal character so Emerald Fennell has done that on purpose so that you're watching this movie where men sometimes do really bad horrific things even though people in the storyline think that they're the good guys because that's the narrative we've been told to really understand you know like oh they're good guys like they did they just made a mistake they didn't mean it and because the characters are all being played by these big pop culture characters who we've grown up watching on screen as like the heroes or the nice guy or the best friend or the guy that you want to fall in love with it's really jarring when you see their actions so it's like the Mm. most brilliant storytelling device it's so good so very like obviously it deals with themes of you know sexual assault and that sort of stuff so just be wary kind of going into it but yeah promising young woman best soundtrack best script best cast all the things how to follow that up that's a bloody good watch vibes you will officially cease to pursue any further inquiries is this one of those situations where you want me to do the exact opposite of what you just told me to do I don't know, Vimes. Is it? All right. Well, um, I'm going to follow it up right now. It's something <laughs> called The Watch. <laughs> it's an eight-part fantasy police TV series, and it's actually inspired by the characters of Sir Terry Pratchett's comic fantasy Discworld book series. The story follows an unlikely group of misfits called the City Watch who are reluctantly kind of forced to save the world, much to their own surprise. So it's a bit of a slashy in that it's a comedy, thriller, and fantasy, and the fantasy part of it is probably my favorite because it's quite it's not game of thrones esque it's more it's more like fantastical than that anyway let me just give you a rundown the reason why is because there's trolls there's werewolves there's wizards <laughs> Laura Brodnick's face just lit up they're all my favorite things just together yes, in one show it is. it's really good and then they're kind of all pitted against this evil plot. There's like this plot going on to resurrect this great dragon, which would, if it did happen, would lead to the destruction of life as they know it. So that's kind of the gist of it. And the cast is quite good too. We've got Richard Dormer, who you might remember from Game of Thrones. He plays the lead role of Sam Vimes, who is the captain of City Watch. And then he's also joined by I May Destroy You actress Lara Rossi, who plays Lady Sybil Ramkin. And it's just good. If you don't mind a bit of fantasy, a bit of thrill, there's a few familiar faces I think you'll really like it and all the episodes came out on New Year's Day so watch the watch I'm definitely watching that fantasy storytelling is the best kind of storytelling (laughs) I love there's some things we very much disagree on and then the (laughs) one things we do agree on always so random (laughs) well let me take you back to March quarantine had just hit the world was staying at home and Tiger King was on Netflix. It was released pretty much at the time when everyone was being told to stay home and all we had to do was turn inward to entertainment to bloody turn off on what was actually going on in our real lives. So Eric Good was this filmmaker who is actually 
also a Manhattan hotelier and restaurateur, but he has this like weird, not really weird, he's like does a lot of charity work for exotic turtles. But anyway, his love and passion for saving exotic turtles led him to meet someone who had a snow leopard in the back of his van in Florida. And from there, he and his filmmaking partner began the documentary, which was meant to be initially just this exploration of kind of big cat breeding and its bizarre underworld in the US. But it ultimately became about the eccentric characters and dun 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 murder plots. Laura Brodnick, how does it feel to be back in March talking about Tiger King. Oh, the pandemic and Tiger King, like two of my least favorite things of 2020. <laughs> so I'm not enjoying this. But even though, look, I know I was hesitant to watch it at the time and you dragged me into this kicking and screaming, but I don't think that even I can turn away from the cultural impact it had and is still having with all the movies and TV shows and everything that's coming out still from this. Oh, 100%. And I think like it's also important to note, like I think at the time, a lot of animal activists were watching this and saying, oh, this is so bad, like you shouldn't be doing this because the way that they kind of shot the documentary was to let them do what they want to do and not tell them not to do anything because they wanted to give a true and accurate representation of actually what was going on in the US in this big cat industry. And as a result of really showing the worst of it, it meant that the impact of it was quite far reaching. I was reading a New York Times piece where Eric Good, who the documentary guy who I spoke about earlier, had said that a member of Congress had called him and and confirmed that the documentary was helping to get the votes they needed to pass the Big Cat Public Safety Act, a bill that would ban most of the private big cat ownership and public contact with big cats. And then as a result of this, we've had, obviously, by the end of the documentary, Joe Exotic, one of the main characters, the kind of gay, gun-toting big cat loving but also killing and murder plotting guy was serving a 22-year sentence for trying to kill his fellow co-star Carol Baskin and for wildlife violations. But then other private zoo owners who appeared in the documentary also faced charges as well. So Doc Antle, Jeff Lowe and Tim Stark were all convicted of animal cruelty and violating the Endangered Species Act. So it had a far-reaching impact on pop culture just to be in the zeitgeist. It also had an impact on real life laws and and people who were doing really bad things. And then of course, entertainment. I mean, 2021 is going to be filled with all of the movies that are going to be coming out about Tiger King. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a limited series coming. There's a movie coming. Kate McKinnon's going to make her kind of next big acting choice of playing Carol Basket. And I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg. And even just the look of those characters, like, you know, it's a rare character where you can just put on a few accessories and people immediately know the character that you're Mm. alluding to with both of those so it's like they've become not even real people they've become these caricatures in pop culture so yeah not to mention the tiktok trends that went around them you know that carol baskin song killed her husband remember that God, that's so good let's play that here just to to make everyone remember (laughs) carol baskin killed her husband whacked him can't convince me that it didn't happen fed him to tigers they snack it what's happening Carol Baskin, Hilder, husband, well, on the completely other end of the spectrum and the other end of the year, we're talking about quite a recent release, which is The Undoing on Foxtel. 
So The Undoing, which of course starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, it followed their characters who are a very rich and affluent New York couple, Grace and Jonathan. Grace was a therapist and her husband was a surgeon. And we learn as the plot goes along that a new young mother at their very prestigious school where their young son attends was murdered and the couple get really swept away in that murder and who committed it. I feel like I shouldn't say, I feel like everyone at this stage knows who did it key, but I'm not going to say it just in case anyone's listening to this and hasn't heard it. We'll give you a few more months of grace period before we do that. But it went on to be the most watched show ever on Binge in Australia. And it currently ranks in Australia as the number one drama to date on Foxtel, which are pretty big numbers when you look at the fact that it has surpassed the audience figures for Big Little Lies, which came out in 2017, which... At the time, Big Little Lies felt like such a massive cultural moment that everyone was talking about it. And The Undoing felt like that as well, but not to the same extent. I wonder if it didn't have that big star-sided cast, but the numbers say that it was actually bigger. It's also surpassed the numbers for all the other huge titles on Foxtel, including The Outsider, True Detective, Watchmen, Westworld. It's just blown them out of the water to the point where that's why there is that massive big painting of Nicole Kidman now erected in the heart of Sydney for everyone Mm -hmm. to see. It was to show that this show with an Australian lead actress who also weirdly sings the theme song had surpassed what? all of these. Yeah, did you not know that? Did you not know no, that? I didn't know that. I'm sure I told you that. This is why you need to listen when I speak. To show that this show had surpassed all of these figures. But what's super interesting about The Undoing I find is that even though it's broken all these records and like the overseas numbers for it as well surpassed like in the US surpassed millions and it also outranked Big Little Lies. So you have this drama that in the numbers and ratings is sitting so far ahead of every other show. So in terms of numbers, it's had an impact. But in terms of culture and storytelling, I don't think it has. Like I don't think it broke any new ground. I don't think it did storytelling in a new way. If anything, it almost felt very old-fashioned in a way. Like, I don't think it said anything new about violence against women. I don't think it said anything new about white male characters and their wives and those stories. I just think Big Little Lies did break new ground and it's hard not to compare the two because of the Nicole Kidman factor. Mm. And I felt like in that one, watching her story of domestic violence and how it unfolded was very groundbreaking. But this, it's like, oh, we're just seeing a young woman beat up for a bit of drama and that's very retro. I'm kind of in two minds about that because I think there was two things at play here. I think doing a weekly release is definitely, even though that's very old school, it's almost new school again because we're so used to binging our episodes. But then the other thing I was going to say was we are going to spoil who the killer is now, so skip forward oh, if you Sorry, haven't. everyone, I tried. <laughs> but what I did like was the fact that it was the man that was closest to the person. And statistically, that is what it is, right? But we always see on screen that it ends up being some weird person that you never expect, which isn't actually that realistic. Everyone blew up about the ending, but I really liked the ending because it was like, no, no, that's the thing. It's always going to be the person, well, not always, but you should be looking at the people who are closest to it. And statistically, it always is someone that the woman knows whenever it's in the case of a woman being killed. So I I appreciated that and I know that we are left wanting more. Like my partner was so offered at the end and I was like, I was really pleased. I was like, no, he was a psycho. He was just trying to play us and put on his cute little doctor's act and like, oh, I'm a hero, but really he's a stone cold killer. (laughs) Exactly. Look, I do agree with all those points. I just wish it hadn't glamorised the abuse so much, but in terms of 
him being found guilty and, and, and the public seeing who he was from like a, a viewer point of view, 100% agree. Yes. Moving on to another little blast from the past in some Ooh, and a I'm show making that... making me feel a little bit hot under the collar, <laughs> oh, this one. Oh, God. All right, pull yourself together. This is an M-rated show, and I know you want to go R-rated. So we're talking, of course, about Normal People, the Stan series that came out last year. And I feel like, in a way, it was, it was the first big drama of the year that really grabbed us and got people talking. So mm-hmm. Normal People is, of course, based on the 2018 best-selling novel of the same name by Sally Rooney. And the series followed the very complicated relationship between Marianne, who was played by Daisy Edgar-Jones, and Connell, who was played by Paul Mescal, as they kind of navigated their high school years and this complicated relationship, falling in love, going off together and finding each other again in Trinity College. And it talked a lot about sexual relationships and consent and abuse and depression and all these things that were wrapped up in this seemingly small story about these two people who were pushed together in life. And the book had had quite an impact, but I think actually seeing the story told on screen just, I mean, for one, it changed the conversation around sex scenes on TV in a huge way. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that that was the kind of the most interesting well, not the most interesting, but it was the biggest talking point because we just hadn't really seen anything like that on our screens before. And it was done in a way that was really reflective of what sex in real life is like. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of that is because like, they're not the first show to have an intimacy coordinator, but I think they are one of the first shows to have an intimacy coordinator have such a big hand in the storytelling and really craft the scenes. And when I interviewed Daisy Edgar-Jones after the show came out and we talked about how those sex scenes were brought to life, it wasn't done under a male gaze. It wasn't done for shock value, which so many other shows. I mean, think of like something like Game of Thrones that had a sex scene in every episode, but that didn't change the conversation around sex scenes. Mm. People just liked the shock value of it. Whereas this actually got people talking about the characters and you could see they were very careful to change their body language through each scene. So you see from the first time they have sex when they're in high school to their later years of college when they've been together and they're different people, their body language changes in bed because their characters have changed. And even something like showing a woman with full pubic hair and that was so carefully done. Like they crafted the pubic hair wig and Daisy talked about the fact that was such an important part of the storyline and crafting. I mean, this is the thing I asked this like lovely British actress at like midnight her time when I, we had a Zoom chat and I was like, Tal- talk me through the pubic hair wig. But she was really happy to talk about it because she knew it was going to be groundbreaking and she said she felt yeah. a, real, a real responsibility to make sure that all those little things came together in the story to give a realistic view of the storyline. And also I think it kind of changed the conversation around how we see male characters on TV with mental health struggles because and before yeah. Connell, I don't think we'd seen a character in a TV show like that go through those mental health struggles in a way where it wasn't his defining characteristic, but it was such a big part of his story. And I think it opened up that conversation as well. Yeah. And also the conversation around men wearing jewellery because we know that it's hot. Exactly. Oh, the silver chain. That's the real MVP of 2020. (laughs) It seriously is. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I know what Charlie got for Christmas then. He's already got a gold necklace that he wears. (laughs) I don't need to know your weird, sexy stuff that happens between (laughs) you. Keep it inside. (laughs) 
And speaking of dramas that revolutionised the way we watch TV in 2020, we need to talk about I May Destroy You because it's a drama that not only drew audiences in, but it also challenged the very idea of what a TV show could be and challenged the conversations we could have and the impact a show could have on real people's lives. So for anyone who hasn't watched it, but it was one of the biggest, buzziest shows of 2020, so I feel like most people have, I May Destroy You was the creation of 32-year-old British actor, director, writer, producer, all the things, Michaela Cole. And so this is like actually her personal story that she brought to life through these characters. So I May Destroy You centers on Arabella, who's a social media famous writer, and she's trying to write her second book and it's not coming to her. So to kind of escape her deadline, she goes out for a drink with a close friend and the next morning wakes up within a haze of not knowing what happened. She's bleeding from the head and she begins to piece together the piece is that she has been raped and the rest of the storyline really follows that journey of her trying to piece together what happened and the people who are involved and how it destroys her relationship with her friends and the people she works for and I think it just told the aftermath of sexual assault in such a visceral truthful way that it really kind of changed how these storylines can be told on TV. Yeah definitely and I also think the story from a black point of view as well. And we also had her friend who was a man of colour, who was also gay, who had his own experience with sexual assault. So I think that the way those stories were crafted and and just really seeing people coming to terms with the fact that something like that had happened to them, it might sound weird to say it, but it was fascinating to watch because I think that everyone can kind of relate to being in a situation where they feel a little bit uneasy. And I feel like there are varying degrees of of what happens after that. But I think sexual experiences that aren't always so great aren't often talked about the way that she has written it in a way that's like very raw and honest and truthful and it doesn't shy away from the very ugly side of it and the self-loathing I think that comes with it too. So I just really appreciate her as a writer, as an actress. I think showing the culture as well coming together. I just love that whole grimy UK type of shows and I think it was really good like I watched it with my partner Charlie and he just really loved it too so I think that although it has a woman at the center of the story it was fantastic for you know all sorts of different people to watch as well exactly and if you haven't watched it yet that one is on Foxtel yes All right, darlings, well, we are finishing with a very fancy one because we've got to talk about how the royal fans, they were just eagerly awaiting the release of season four of The Crown on Netflix back in November. This, after all, would be the season that we would see the royals during the 80s. Olivia Coleman would return as Queen Elizabeth. We'd finally see Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher. And Josh <laughs> O'Connor would return as Prince Charles. And, of course, the people's princess, that is Diana, Princess of Wales, would make her debut on the show. We would see them meet for the first time, their very troubled marriage, and the events that unfolded. So in the lead-up to the season's release, I think – all news sites were really dominated by the anticipation that we would be seeing Emma Corrin's Diana on screens. But I don't know if anyone really anticipated the wider impact on pop culture and also a new generation of fans. Exactly. So it really reignited people's 
I mean, not interest in Diana, I think that's always been there, but I think people had kind of got so caught up in our new royal history that we're living through right now Mm. with particularly Kate and William and more so Meghan and Harry that they had forgotten those older stories and most prominently the love triangle between Diana and Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles. And for some people, this is the first time they were seeing this story. And so the rage and anger that they felt seeing a fictionalized version of this play out had real world consequences. And one of those was to the extent that people were so viciously angry at Prince Charles and Camilla that they were just spamming their social media feeds with hate comments and anger and basically saying like, acting as if they just found out this history to the point where the palace had to shut down their social Instagram accounts and ban people from commenting just because the vitriol was getting to be too much. I also think we have to have like a moment of silence for the reemergence of Diana's fashion because she was always known as being so fashionable. But I also think another generation and even us just being reminded about how impeccably dressed she was, even through probably the worst decade of fashion that ever was, which was <laughs> the 80s, um, which I think is like quite cool. I, I've been following a bunch of like Diana Instagrams just to look at all of her stuff. But it's still so heartbreaking, but it's great that we get to kind of relive it again. I also would point out the fact that there's been that big kind of push for Netflix to clarify that it is not completely real. We've even had Earl Spencer, Diana's brother, come out and do an interview saying it needs to be put on record that these are inspired by true events and not true events, whereas Netflix is still very much saying, oh, we're not going to do that. Like, it's obviously fictionalised. So there's interesting conversations going on there. And then also the other thing I wanted to point out was how kind of groundbreaking it was, and you wrote about this, that they heavily featured Diana's eating disorder, which was something that she had spoken about But I don't think a lot of people focus on that much. But I know you had some feelings about how important it was to kind of keep that within the storyline. Yeah, exactly, because there's been so many movies and so many TV shows about Princess Diana, and there's more on the way, most notably the one with Christian Stewart, but we've never seen that part of her life portrayed in that way before. If you watch those scenes of The Crown, and this is actually the first time as well The Crown had ever put a content warning on their show, because obviously watching her eat all this food and then go and purge it in the toilet and, and the drama that she went through and the th- and making herself throw up, that's really triggering for people. When I interviewed Emma Corrin, who played Princess Diana in The Crown, she told me that that was a scene that she had really pushed for, for it to be not just the toilet door closing and the sounds, which is how bulimia is normally portrayed on TV, mm. but the fact that they actually showed it so that you could actually see what a terrible disease it is, but also showing what Diana went through because... Other parts of her story have been told in great detail, but that's one that has never really been explored before. Well, if you haven't watched it, you've obviously been living under a rock, but you might want to crawl out of that rock and you can watch the fourth season of The Crown on Netflix. Well, thank you so much for listening to The Spill today and Happy New Year, Laura Brodnick. Happy New Year to you, Key Reese. Not too long now till we're back in Sydney and sharing some cocktails. <gasps> ching, ching. And if you would like to give us an air cheers, you can pop onto Facebook and join our wonderful Facebook group called The Spill. Just search for it. We'll let you in and you become an official spiller. We drop all of our best recommendations in there and our links to our shows every day so you never miss a beat. This episode of The Spill was produced by Maddie Joanno. We'll see you on Mamma Mia. Bye. Bye. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. 
We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.